Well, hey, I'm so glad that you are here with us uh, this morning. Before we jump into our new sermon series, I did just want to take a few moments and address uh, the news from this past week. Um, One of the strengths of CPC throughout its history has always been that we have had a lot of political diversity in our midst, and yet we've been able to unite together around the gospel, to unite together around what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And biblically, theologically, it's really important that we affirm the image of God in every single human. We affirm the image of God in every baby, in every mother, uh, in every Republican, and in every Democrat. That we affirm that everyone is made in the image of God and worthy of the dignity that that affords. Now, also acknowledging that that is a complicated but necessary reality for the church to lift up during a messy political time. For us to lift up that every body, every human is made in the image of God. And that means a couple of things. One, it means that the church's calling hasn't changed. And so I I don't want us to miss this opportunity uh, to put the love and the grace of Jesus on display. To love those who are hurting, to move towards the vulnerable in our world and in our lives. Our calling hasn't changed. And that also means that we have to resist the temptation to villainize those who don't think and vote like us. And though there are plenty in the media and in social media that will tell you that is not possible for a variety of reasons, I do not believe that for one second. I believe it's possible that we remind ourselves we are bound by something bigger than our political affiliations. Even though I know those political affiliations have real-world consequences, we are bound together by the gospel of Christ. And so our mission has not changed to do justice, to walk humbly, to love mercy, to model for the world what it means to live in what Christ has done for us. Let's not miss a chance to do that. Let's not abandon that. Let's not abandon the unity that only Christ can bring. That's who we're going to be as a church. So that being said, I also want to say one final thing in that regard, and you're welcome here. You are welcome here no matter how the news hit you this past week or what you're processing or what you're feeling or what this has been a part of your story. You are welcome here. That the love and grace of Jesus draws all of us into relationship with him and that you have a safe place to process all of this going on in the world and in your own lives. This is a place where we hope you find the grace and the love of Jesus. So, as you saw in the video, we're starting a new series called Half-Truths We Half-Believe. And and the reason for this is that there are a lot of things in the world, a lot of pieces of cultural wisdom that we often hear repeated, we often hear said, we might even sort of mindlessly say them. Um, And what happens is um, they're not actually from Scripture, but we might start to believe that they are synonymous with what God wants for us. And so we're going to look at some of these over the coming five or six weeks. And the first one we're going to look at is God helps those who help themselves. Now, raise your hand if you've ever heard that phrase before. Thank you. Now, raise your hand if you've ever said that. No, I'm just kidding. Do not. But what we found out this past week, actually, was as we talked with our staff, that some of our younger staff had actually never heard this phrase before. 
that it was somewhat generational. Um, and if you didn't know, this phrase actually comes from uh, a 17th century British politician named Algernon Sidney. Algernon Sidney, uh, it was later popularized in the U.S. by a man named Benjamin Franklin, um, but Algernon Sidney and Benjamin Franklin, for that matter, were both what we would call deists. And so think about a deist, um, think about a deist like, like somebody who keeps saying, we should have you over for dinner, but doesn't actually ever follow through. They think it's a good idea, but they just don't want it to ever inconvenience their life. And so a deist is somebody who believes that God is a good idea, but doesn't actually want God to inconvenience their life. And that's the problem with this saying, is it says we want from God, but what it really is saying at its core is that we're better off doing it on our own. So the half-truth to be uh, affirmed in this is that we actually are called to put our faith into practice. There are no shortage of Bible verses that encourage us to live out our faith. Our faith is a very practical, everyday, real-life kind of thing. But the problem, the unintended problem or unintended belief that comes with this half-truth is that we don't really need God if we can help ourselves. So the problem isn't with action on our part. The problem isn't living out our faith. It's when we start to depend on ourselves rather than God. So I want to offer a biblical alternative to this phrase. The best way to help yourself is to depend on God. It's the best way to help yourself. The way to receive the abundant life that God has for us is to build our lives on what Christ has done for us, not to build our lives on what we can do. Now, we have a biblical example of this. So if you'll turn into Philippians chapter 3, it'll be on the screens. But if you have a Bible or can grab a pew Bible in front of you, I'm going to ask you to interact with uh, the scriptures in a couple of different ways but we are in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 7. He says, this is the Apostle Paul writing, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Verse 10, I want to know Christ Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. So we talked for, for weeks after Easter about experiencing the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Let's pause right there. So three things I want you to see in the text. First is, I want you to underline verse 7. If you have a pew Bible, you are more than welcome to write in one of the pew Bibles. A good Bible is a Bible that's well-loved and well-used. So uh, Philippians chapter 3, underline verse 7. Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. So if you don't know, and it's okay if you don't, the Apostle Paul who's writing this letter, was a very special man. In fact, he would have told you all about just how special 
he was. If you scan back a few verses in the text, he literally just said that he had the right education. He was born to the right parents. He was raised in the right city. He was the smartest and hardest working, and he poured everything into being the very best. And so this guy was like, you know, the class president and the quarterback of the football team. He was the head of the debate team. He was the valedictorian. He went to MIT for engineering, and he went to Johns Hopkins for medicine. He went to Wharton for business. Right? This guy did all the things that you're supposed to do. He was on the right track. If anybody had made it, if anybody had helped themselves, it was Paul. And so as we read this, I know that it's probably tempting to believe or, or to think like, yeah, well, but he's a biblical figure. Of course, he chose Jesus over all of that stuff. But do you really think it was that easy for him? So here's a man who has built his entire life on giving it his best shot to get the life that he wanted. Can you identify with spending your life giving it your best shot to get the life you want? But here's the thing. What he did was, when he, at the end of the day, when he held up in one hand all of his credentials— and he held up in the other hand what Christ had done for them. He said, all of this, all that I built my life on, is gone. I'll let it go. It doesn't matter. Why? Because when he looked at the life that he had built, he realized there was one roadblock. It was him. He was the roadblock. But then we looked at a life with Christ. It was a life of abundance, a life that he could never get to on its own because it wasn't in his own power. It was within the power, the resurrection power of Christ. Jesus offered him a different way beyond what he could ever get to on his own. And therefore, the second thing, I want you to circle the phrase, I consider them garbage. See, garbage is not a word you expect to show up in the Bible, is it? I consider them garbage. Now, uh, some of your translations might use the word rubbish. Rubbish is a good word. But the actual Greek word that's used here means something just a little bit different. So kids, uh, parents, you might want to cover your kids' ears. I'm just kidding, sort of. Uh, it means fit for the dunghill is what it means. That's what the word means, fit for the dunghill. I consider it fit for the dunghill. Why would he use this language? Because sometimes garbage isn't neutral. Sometimes garbage is bad for us. It's dangerous for us. It's bad for our health. I'll give you an example. This past week, I, was, I went to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and I went out into our mudroom, which is not insulated. So it's been really hot the last few weeks. Went out to our uh, mudroom to get a a jar of jelly. I come inside, I open it up, and there's mold on top of it. And I did not realize it could happen in a shelf-stable jar of jelly, but apparently it can. And it crossed my mind. You just scoop off the mold off top. <laughs> it's really good jelly. I like the jelly a lot. And I, was, I really wanted the PB&J. It was all the jelly we had. So do you just scoop it up? You don't, by the way. Don't do it. I, just, I eventually just went, this is garbage, I threw it out. But had I chosen to eat it, it would have made me sick, right? Garbage is not always neutral. Sometimes garbage is bad for us. And is it possible that the ways that we're building our lives on ourselves is actually bad for us? That it's not neutral. 
that is damaging our soul. Sometimes I think we can get in this lie of believing that we're either neutral or we're moving towards Jesus. But what if we're building our lives on something that is actually bad for us and bad for our souls? So third, I want you to underline in verse 10 the phrase, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. And then circle a few words in that sentence. Power, participation, and becoming. Power, participation, and becoming. Because if you're thinking like, well, what are we supposed to do? Sit around and do nothing? Following Jesus is not opposed to activity, right? He says, I want to experience his power. I want to participate in his sufferings. I want to become like him. These are actions. This is an image of a life that's well-lived and following Jesus and active. In fact, one of the early Christians, John, says this, those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. The Bible is never afraid to call us to live out our faith. And yet we are challenged to never try to impress God with our actions. Because at the end of the day, like, God helps those who help themselves is about trying to get to a good life by proving our worth, trying to earn a, and achieve a good life. One author, Sky Tathani, calls this a life for God posture. And he actually uses this passage in Philippians 3 to show that even though Paul was certainly on mission, in fact, I don't know that we could find somebody in the history of the church who was more on mission than Paul, the irreducible center of his faith was always about what Christ had done for him. Here's what Skyjathani says. This personal connection with Christ is what Paul valued above all else and why he could find joy even while in chains. So Paul was in chains while he wrote this letter, which by the way meant that he had lost all of the credentials that he had built his life on. His communion with Christ rooted and preceded his work for him. Friends, we always, always, always need to be steeped in what Christ has done for us so that we understand that we are never the initiators, we are always the responders, that we respond to how Christ has moved towards us. So here's the thing that this passage is getting at. Here's, here's the problem that this passage is addressing. That when we build our lives on anything other than Christ, that thing will ultimately become a barrier to our relationship with God. It will ultimately become a dead end. It will ultimately end up limiting our faith. It will be a barrier to growth in relationship with God. And so this is how it worked for Paul. Paul, being a good Jewish man, had really set up his life to be obedient to the law. But the problem is the Jewish law was given so that people would conduct a relationship with God, but he had focused on his ability to keep the law, and therefore it became a barrier, not a conduit to God. So it was meant to point him to the grace and generosity of God, but instead he was using it to point to how good he could be, and that became a barrier to God. What are you depending on? What are you depending on in your life now that is becoming a barrier to God? It might even be a good thing, but it's becoming a barrier to God. And for some of us, it's, it's careers. For some of us, it's accumulation. Some of it's acquisitions, curating the perfect image, defining ourselves, social status, 
performance in school or in work or on the field? What is becoming a barrier because it's defining you and you're depending on it to lead you to the life that you should instead be depending on God for? Uh, I heard a report recently uh, about this group of uh, students that were graduating high school they were going to college. And now, so these were like high-performing high school students who had the best grades. You know, they were valedictorians. They were acing the SAT and ACT. They were getting into all the best schools. And in the study, uh, they got to college and they were just completely lost. They were just completely out of sorts. They couldn't manage. They couldn't make, uh, they couldn't keep up with their schedules. They couldn't keep up with their classes. They were having a really hard time in college. And so, What's interesting is they had done everything right. They had the best resumes. They had the best grades. They had built a high school career that was admirable. They did all the volunteering, were on all the teams. And then they they got to a new part of life and they were having a hard time functioning. Now, pause. I'm not pointing fingers at these students. In fact, I think often students are living in the reality that their parents and grandparents create. So I'm not pointing fingers at these students. I'm just naming, this this is what this research found, was that these high-performing students were really struggling when they got to college because here's what happened. They had done the right things. They had built their life on what they could do and accomplish. But at some point, it became what? It became a barrier. At some point, it became a barrier because they had built their life on their abilities and their achievements. And then when life was a little more out of their control, when they had to face curveballs, when they had to live in a different environment, they weren't so in control anymore. And what had previously been a blessing had become a barrier because they found their identity in it rather than something bigger than it. This is what happens in our lives over and over. We find our identity in blessings that become barriers because ultimately those things cannot bear the weight of our soul or our salvation. Where are you placing your faith in something that's becoming a barrier because you're believing some version of God helps those who help themselves? And look, many of us are exhausted, right? We're exhausted because to prove ourselves, to define ourselves, to help ourselves is truly an unwinnable game. It's like playing Candyland with a preschooler. It's exhausting. There is no end to it. You cannot win. That's why many of us are so exhausted. There's got to be a better way. Theologian Charles Spurgeon says this, God helps those who cannot help themselves. Ah, That's a better way. That's a better way. The gospel is good news about what God has done for you in Jesus, not what you can do for God to get Jesus to bless you. It's good news about the death and resurrection of Jesus that changes everything. It's good news that we can depend on him and we do not have to depend on ourselves, that we don't have to be the initiators that we're out seeking the blessing of God, but instead that God has already initiated towards us in Jesus Christ. We get to respond to it and live in light of it. The best way to help yourself is to depend on God.
It's the best way to help yourself. Um, some of you probably find yourself in situations like I do, which is where you uh, end up getting asked for advice for things. You end up getting asked for advice um, or, or wisdom or how to respond to a situation or someone brings an issue and they want to process with you. And, um, and, and I'll, I'll be completely honest, in, in my really fleshly self, like in my own sinful flesh, uh, it, it can be really annoying um, when you give somebody advice and they don't take it. I mean, there are times where, like, one of three things happens, right? So either I give, I give advice and I'm like, man, that was really good. <laughs> like, I'm just thinking, like, that was the smartest thing I've ever said. I didn't even plan on it. It just came out. It must have been the Holy Spirit. Uh, and then they don't take it. They, don't, they, they completely, they, they don't act on it. They don't take it. Uh, the second thing that happens is I say it and I'm like, and they look at me as if I haven't said something brilliant. Can you believe it? And the third thing that happens is I say something that I think is really profound and they look at me like I've got like four horns growing out of my head. Like how could you suggest that is the way forward? Like what? Here's what I've come to realize. I cannot change anyone's life. I can't change anyone's life. I can't. Only Jesus can change people's lives. My job your job, the church's job at the end of the day is to point people towards the grace of Christ. That is the best we can do is to point people towards the grace of Jesus that meets us exactly where we are, but doesn't leave us where we are. It moves us along the journey. We are called to point people to the grace of Christ because here's what I've seen. What I really want to do is to point them to the wisdom of P.D. Crowder. Right? Like, I want them to see that brilliant advice I've given, and I want to go, man, this is what you need to do with your life. Just do it, and everything will be perfect. But while I'm pointing them to the brilliance of P.D. Crowder, I cannot point them to the grace of Jesus. And this is always garbage. And this, the grace of Christ, is always powerful. It always shows up. It always sustains. And that's our calling. Our calling is not to point people to what we can do in our own flesh. Our calling is to point people to the grace of Jesus. And we cannot live that way. We cannot do that if we are building lives based on our own abilities and our own strength. We are called to point people to the grace of Christ. The best way to help yourself is to depend on what Jesus has done for you. Amen? Amen.